Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bede Haynes, and before we begin today's interview, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which I live and pay my respects to the elders, the stories and the traditions past, present and future. Today, I'm speaking with Stuart Curls. Stuart is an adjunct professor at La Trobe Business School, part of La Trobe University in Victoria. Stuart was awarded a PhD from Monash University and has had several other roles, including a research fellow at Melbourne University's Institute of Applied Economics and Social Research, a member of Monash University's Centre for Regulatory Studies, roles in the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, the Victoria Auditor General's Office, and as an economist at accountancy firms PBB Advisory and KPMG. And additionally, and probably most pleasing for those of us listening to this podcast channel, Stuart is an accomplished and prized winning author of several genres, social history, science, literary history, economic and business history, and most recently, fiction. Today's book is called The Convent, A City Finds Its Heart, published in 2020 by an imprint of the Melbourne University Press, and picking up from the back of the book, It reads, the Abbotsford Convent was this haunted place, left to languish for years after the last of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd had gone. In its prime, it had been a school, a refuge, a retreat, a workhouse, and a prison, the single largest charitable institution in the Southern Hemisphere. In the late 1990s, there was a proposed high-density development which threatened the idyllic riverside location sparking outrage in the local community and further afield. Years of protesting, negotiating, fundraising followed and the convent now 
on Australia's National Heritage List has started a new life as a vibrant centre for art and culture. So this is the book in which Stuart Kells tells this story. Now, Stuart, good afternoon and thank you for coming along today. Thanks, Pete. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Great. I'll begin with a traditional opening question for these podcasts. Why did you decide to write this book? It's a really good question. I knew aspects of this story going back um, into the um, the first years of the Brax government uh, in Victoria. So in the early 2000s, uh, I was working in the Department of Premier and Cabinet uh, when this came up as a as a um, possible opportunity to turn the site into a community asset. Um, and uh, Richard Wynne was Parliamentary Secretary to the Premier at the time and also the local member, and he was a very important uh, participant on the government side, uh, and he and I were uh, we had uh, adjacent offices uh, in the premier's office uh, building, and um, I, I saw a few briefs and submissions uh, come by. So I knew I was aware of the campaign in that period, uh, and then maybe about ten years later, uh, I joined the board of the of the convent once it had been established as a, a um, community arts. And, and cultural precinct, and I've, I've been on the board for uh, more than five years now. Um, and uh, about, I'd say, four years ago, three or four years ago, uh, the idea of having a, um, a history of the, uh, the convent uh, written uh, came up, um, in part because some of the key people um, involved in the campaign um, were, were elderly, uh, including some of the, some of the nuns, um, and because the full story hadn't really been captured or told. And uh, I think it was a natural <laughs> question, natural natural answer to the question of who, who to get to write it uh, when you have an author uh, on the board. Um, and so I spoke to people like Charlotte Allen, who'd been one of the key early campaigners, and began the research and did uh, detailed interviews with some of the key players in the, in the coalition that first ran the community campaign uh, and also former uh, developers and board members and politicians and, and other people and, and um, over a period of about two years captured the story. Excellent. Well, for those who aren't familiar with Melbourne and people listening to this will be based in other countries as well, could you please let me know and locate this place called Abbotsford within Melbourne, giving a sense of its its flavour, its urban flavour, demographics, the desirability to live there, and whether it's a place that's undergone some form of gentrification. Sure. Yes, well, like most inner suburbs in major um, cities in Australia, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, an economic and a cultural roller coaster for, for Abbotsford. In the very early days, so in the 1830s into the 1840s, when... Um, Melbourne was first established as a city. It was one of the first areas of land release and it was a very desirable area. So you had um, gentlemen farmlets uh, owned by key industrialists and, and politicians and lawyers, judges. Um, and it was a, it's described as a sort of the Turak of the period, which is, which is a very desirable suburb. But if you fast forward to after the gold rush, 
of the 1850s in in uh, Victoria, it became a very uh, very much a, the opposite, a, a, a more dangerous and, and less desirable area. Um, lots of um, small houses and a lot of poverty. Little factories like um, soap factories and abattoirs and things, uh, and it was a bit of a bit of a rough area. Uh, at a time when Melbourne was growing incredibly fast and there was a very significant urban poor. If you fast forward to now, um, I think the cycle's changed again and it's a pretty desirable area right on the edge of the of the inner suburbs, right near the Yarra River. Uh, it's in this nice um, crossover between being adjacent to the east to Kew, which is a very desirable area, um, to Richmond uh, towards the south, um, uh, Fitzroy and Collingwood uh, to the west, um, and uh, yeah, Alfington and Fairfield, etc., to the north. So it's a very desirable part of Melbourne now, um, and you can imagine those sort of um, little workers' cottages and um, uh, weatherboard and, and rendered brick cottages uh, have all been renovated, or most of them, most of them have been renovated. The factories have turned turned into um, uh, factory conversions. So it's it's a lovely area, and um, part of the reason why um, this campaign um, was kicked off in the first place to to capture this space in public hands was concern over overbuilding along the Yarra River. Uh, so it was a time when there were there weren't many apartments along that stretch of the river, and there wasn't a lot of building, but there was a concern that this site would become essentially a gated community with with towers, etc. Uh, and that would have been a, a big loss of public space. And that particular aspect of the campaign was very prescient because if you look at that area now, particularly um, further south in Richmond, near where the um, Victoria Gardens shopping centre is and, and that part of Abbotsford on the on the south side, it's very, very heavily built with um, large apartment blocks and large shopping centres and things. So it was very timely, but yeah, there's a really it's a unique place in Melbourne because it's quite close to the CBD. It's only about four kilometres from the centre of the city, but it has this really rural sort of feel because uh, uh, it's at the bottom of um, a sort of green wedge that follows the winding course of the Yarra River up towards the the, um, the towards the northeast and ultimately into the Yarra Valley. Um, so uh, if, if you go there and, and to the main entrance of the convent, you look around, all you see is um, eucalypts and there's this semicircle of bushland that surrounds the site and has been there for um, yeah, forever. So um, it is this really interesting mixture of urban and, um, and bush. Okay. Now, um, a more local question. Mm. For those who live there, is it the Collingwood Magpies or the Richmond Tigers? Of like, who's <laughs> favourite? That's a really good question. I think it would be very much more the Magpies uh, than the Tigers in general. Uh, north side of the river, <laughs> much more likely to be Magpies. But uh, it's a very good question. And um, those uh, allegiances don't necessarily uh, follow very, very closely the um, the suburban boundaries anymore. Um, and... Um, the economics of living in Collingwood, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, living in Collingwood was a, was an interesting proposition. It was a pretty rough area even then, uh, but now uh, it's very much the opposite. So I'm not sure that there are super and large numbers of Collingwood fans actually in Collingwood. Um, but, yeah, good question. Excellent. Now, uh, one other 
introductory question, the land itself, Abbotsford, you say in the book, you tell the story in the book of how Abbotsford, the land was named Abbotsford, and that land, that name itself derives from the name of Walter Scott's farm. And it refers to a ford that was used by monks, so a ford by abbots. And there's something interesting about this imagery because Walter Scott was a, a Scottish churchman, as I understand it, but he's said to have had some Catholic leanings. And then years later, there was a bunch of nuns who will come to in a second, came across the oceans, forded the oceans to come to live at a place called Abbotsford. So there seems to be something serendipitous almost in that name and the people who came to live there. I think you're 100% right. And I'm very cued to those questions of names and and etymology. Um, and yes, it was a really interesting coincidence that the and, and it makes sense, obviously, but that the word itself had that um, religious uh, connotation. Um, but the way it came to Melbourne was entirely secular. So um, it was a house uh, built by uh, a chap called John Orr uh, in the 1840s, so very early in the history of Melbourne. He was a, a local uh, you know, commercial and political figure, uh, and he took the name from the house that you mentioned um, but it was very much a private home and a grand um, colonial style uh, private home uh, on the Abbotsford Peninsula. Um, and only later, uh, 20 years later, did it have a, a religious connotation again uh, in Melbourne. So, yeah, there's definitely some interesting serendipity there. But the, na- the neighbouring house, which also had a religious name, St Helier's, uh, and which was also initially a secular house, the uh, nuns who bought Abbotsford House also had their eye on um, the neighbouring St Helier's building. Um, and uh, it, it is said that they did a lot of praying and, and even um, uh, standing up uh, religious icons to um, aid their um, uh, campaign to acquire the neighbouring property, which was ultimately successful. Uh, and for a long time, the, uh, the convent was known as St Helier's as well as Abbotsford Convent. Ah, yes, it's interesting. Now. We'll get to the nuns in a second, but there's one question I want to ask first. The book itself, for those who come to read the book, they'll find that it has it weaves two stories together. The first is the story of the of the local community, essentially from prehistory through to the convent, and then there there are other chapters which deal with the community's efforts to try and preserve this land. And what I wanted to ask was the Aspects about the convent and the history of the land are written in the way in which a historian might write it. There's, it takes an objective viewpoint. And when it comes to the community group parts of the story, there's a, a sense, in at least as I read the book and I'm reading along, of there's more investment by the author of the book into the cause of the people trying to preserve the land. It's almost... It's not, it's not, criticizing it as side taking or anything like that but there's just two one way is almost it's almost like a documentary following the community group around so you Mm. really feel for them and you feel for the the wins and losses they have along the way which stands in contrast to the much more objective historical view of the convent life was that a deliberate choice that was made when you're preparing this book that's a really good question um so The idea of having the two interwoven stories was certainly a a deliberate choice. Uh, And the reason why I did that is because there really are multiple stories 
to be told about that site. There's the long history, um, the indigenous, and then the um, colonial um, and conventional um, histories, and then the, the history is, a, is essentially a university campus. But also the story of the campaign itself, which had multiple stages and facets. So I deliberately tried to interweave those. Um, and the, the latter story, the, the story about the campaign, it's relatively unusual to have this kind of uh, documentary record in that sort of detail of a community campaign. They're an important aspect of social history, but they often don't get documented. Uh, they often don't succeed as well. Um, so that was entirely deliberate. Um, the tone uh, or the perspective that you touched on, I'm not sure. I think um, partly what you might be detecting, particularly in the campaign, is that I really um, stood shoulder to shoulder in writing that with some of the key figures in the campaign itself, so through the interviews. And um, I had um, you know, really good and deep engagement with the people who led the campaign. So I'm sure part of that is their voices speaking through uh, that part. Um, but yeah, it, it's um, I, I personally found it quite an emotional uh, project, uh, and, and I think it's fair to say I was emotionally uh, invested both in the conventional story and in the um, in the campaign. And you do feel that um, there are those sort of uh, highs and lows <laughs> of both phases, but uh, particularly with the campaign, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, so yeah, uh, I've, I've tried to be objective and and factual, um, and and it is that, and it's very much based on interviews and archival research. But there probably is a bit of the passion uh, peeking through, either from myself or from the people that I've been uh, you know, researching with. Yeah, no, I, I felt that emotion. It reminded me, in a way, of the Mike Moore documentary Roger and Me. I don't know if you've seen that about Flint, Michigan, and. Mm. If, you feel the 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 in that case the filmmakers just the filmmaker really brings the reader or the viewer in that case into the story and that's what I found this book did you you actually brought the reader into this community group and you get you got a sense of a, of a world you wouldn't I would personally have never been involved in and I've really felt that. Oh, thank you. That's a great observation and that's a, that's very much the intention is to bring the reader into those moments, literally sitting around the kitchen table and planning these things or. That moment with, um, with you know the billionaires sitting around on stools in the um, in the farm shed at the children's farm, plan, planning fundraising, uh, those sorts of things. Um, some amazing moments and turning points in the campaign, and yeah, part of uh, what I tried to do was to to capture those in in um, you know convincing detail, so that the reader could really feel and experience uh, those moments and and that emotional roller coaster. But in the conventional period as well, it's, it's very sad. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of positives about what the nuns were trying to do, um, but also there were, you know, terrible um, experiences uh, for people mm. who were you know, in the convent. So, uh, again, I've tried to capture that um, in, in its, uh, in its uh, richness. Yeah, well, that's great. Now, a couple of questions. We'll get on to the nuns now. Who who are I suppose they're still they they're still an are who are the sisters of the Good Shepherd? Well, they have they've gone through all sorts of different phases as well. Um, but they they um, began uh, as a religious order in in France, um, and uh, this particular group of nuns uh, came over here from uh, from Ireland, 
uh, although although it was a French order, uh, they came over here in 1863 uh, with the idea of setting up a convent that was a, a, a um, you know a, an office of the order in in Melbourne. Uh, as I touched on before, it was a time in Melbourne when um, there was really rapid social change post gold rush. Population was growing very quickly. There was a very significant urban poor. Um, a lot of um, young women, uh, in particular, uh, in in very difficult circumstances, and um, it's important to, to to understand that the different Catholic orders at the time had different philosophies and, and different histories. So there were uh, religious orders in Melbourne at the time, including Catholic uh, religious orders, who did uh, minister to the poor, but um, for the most part, they had um, concepts of. Uh, looking after what you you might think of it in those days as the deserving poor, um, and not um, what they called <laughs> with this very nebulous and loaded language, not quote fallen women, um, and it was the fallen women in particular who needed the most help. Uh, noting that fallen women included a very very you know wide range of different people, from people who um, were from you know bad marriages or um, people who were um, pregnant out of marriage, uh, people who were forced into sex work, uh, alcoholics, um, criminals, um, and all sorts of different kinds of, of people in all sorts of different kinds of circumstances. And uh, there was this large population of people who really weren't being um, supported through um, through religious orders and through charities. And they were the focus very much of, of this order, that they would essentially welcome um, all comers um, and um, on, on a large scale. And so it was, in some ways it was ideal uh, for Melbourne at the time. Um, but as I touched on before, um, the flip side of that, though, was that the way that they uh, engaged with people uh, once inside was, was pretty harsh and, and pretty austere. Um, they had all sorts of ethics, for example, about not talking about people's history. Once you came into the, into the convent, you, you, kind of your history was, was gone. Um, and there was no discussion of what had happened to you, you know, in, in the days and weeks immediately before. And that was very hard. Imagine uh, young women who've recently had a miscarriage or recently given birth and given up their child or people who'd been in abusive marriages or, or had been forced into sex work. You can imagine um, going into a place where you're safe and, and you are supported, but there's no kind of you know, emotional support. They, they frowned on people creating friendships. Um, there were all sorts of different divisions within the convent of different types of inmates and they really couldn't engage with each other. So it was a very harsh and, and austere um, environment. The nuns had an ethos of not physically touching the, the, um, the um, Magdalens and the inmates and the, and the, um, and the different kinds of... Um, people that came there, uh, which obviously has uh, the positive side to that, but there's also a negative side around, you know, the lack of emotional support and that kind of thing. Mm. So um, very, very difficult. But, yeah, so they, they were a, an international religious order and that became one of their uh, largest um, uh, facilities in the Southern Hemisphere um, and it became a really important part of, of Melbourne. So um, one of the first things they had to do was decide how to be viable and how to be you know, uh, financially sustainable. And so um, they um, set up a farm 
Um, they did lace work and, and other things. They did a lot of fundraising and held very big events, including at the exhibition buildings. Um, and ultimately, one of their most important um, economic uh, industries was that they, they set up a very big laundry. Uh, and this wasn't unusual in the order or in other large um, Catholic facilities to, to essentially run a laundry. And so they were a laundry to some of the major hospitals and also to some businesses and local families. And they did this literally on an industrial scale. And so you can imagine uh, if you're a young woman or, 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 or a um, you know, lady who's left a difficult marriage uh, and suddenly you, you put to work in the laundry and that, they worked very hard. Um, and uh, there was um, you know, all sorts of terrible stories about industrial accidents and, and people being worked very hard and the nuns themselves worked incredibly hard as well. And there was a real ethos in the convent of self-sufficiency so um, the women did, um, you know, they did all the gas connections. They did a lot of the shoemaking and, and um, driving the tractors, um, which, um, you know, for, for, for some women was, was a great, um, you know, a way to essentially escape the social strictures of the time and to engage in those kinds of occupations and, in a sense, professional work. But for mm. some people it was very gruelling and... and um, there are accusations of, of people being sort of overworked and, and those sorts of things as well. So um, a real sort of mixed, mixed blessing, I would say. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes yeah, so i was going to I'll, I'll comment on some of those points you've made there or ask you some your views on a few things the first is the you, you've made that observation that the fallen women as they were called were the ones who this order attracted which seems to be a noble gesture on behalf of the order as opposed to the deserving poor and and they were welcomed into the convent was was the way it was expressed. But could you comment on one aspect of the book which I found quite puzzling, but I imagine it was standard in the day, was that it was essentially a prison. People, women could be sentenced there under legislation to work there or to be inmates there for a certain period of time, almost as though it was a, a, a jail of sorts. Mm. Can you explain that? that system in Victoria or I imagine across Australia and how how that came to be? Yes. Um, so there's lots of different parts of the convent and, and uh, different reasons why someone might be in there. Um, some women went there in order to become nuns and to take holy orders uh, and so they would go through a particular track. 
Um, some women went in there um, essentially for penitential uh, reasons to try and you know reform their lives, and and they had certain strictures around them as well. Um, some people were in there because essentially they were um, wards of the state, and and it was a bit like a kind of uh, a juvenile prison. Um, so that they would be sentenced to go and, and you know be be wards of the wards in the convent to work in the industrial school. Um, and to be, um, you know, that they were kept there. And so the idea of them being uh, prisoners and inmates is, is, is accurate. Some people went there because it was a normal school. Um, there were children who went there as school children just for the day. Um, and some people went there as orphans um, because they ran, ran an orphanage. So um, there are all sorts of different reasons why people were there. The, the um, people who are wards at the state um, literally were uh, in a sense, uh, in jail, but even some of the other um, women there, like uh, the Magdalens, uh, there was a there's a custodial aspect of that as well, and and um, some of them didn't like it, uh, and uh, they literally escaped by climbing the wall at night uh, and uh, and running off into the into the you know local area. Um, there are all sorts of different kinds of escape stories um, uh, from from the convent. Uh, some of them uh, quite accurate, some of them uh, exaggerated <laughs> and uh, for political and, and sectarian reasons and other reasons. Um, but fundamentally, the ethos was, you know, if you're in the convent, you're in the convent and it was life behind the wall. You'd made a commitment. Um, the nuns um, said a lot of times that um, that women who were there, not as wards of the state, but as um, you know, um, penitents or, or um, others, had the right to leave, um, but uh, I think it's fair to say that it wasn't super easy to leave uh, and that um, there were different kinds of pressures on, on women uh, about um, you know, whether they could easily leave once, they were, once they'd made a commitment to different kinds mm. of, of um, you know, tracks. Yes. With the – you mentioned sector. Well, there's an excellent chapter in the book on escape, so I'll leave that for people to read, but there are some very strange stories about how the women leave or the young ladies leave and end up in neighbours' houses and police and nuns turn up to grab them back by the collar and it's it's it just seems so strange. Mm. But the what, what I wanted to ask was another point you touched on was the sectarianism and there's, there was some... I, I, I got the sense in reading it that a lot of the records you, you referred to had to actually be viewed as potentially being sectarian exaggerations of things. But there was one criticism that came through from some of the locals in the area was that because this was a convent and a religious charity, they got government subsidies so they didn't have to pay, I think, for water, which is a must be a massive a massive benefit if you're running a commercial laundry not to have to pay for water costs. Mm. And there was a complaint that they the Magdalene laundry was run for profit, even though the profit might have been channeled into a charitable type institution. But the diff, the downside that caused was that there were other people within the local area working in other commercial laundries and those laundries lost any ability to be able to compete. What was your what are your views on that? Yes, so you've touched on a lot there. Um, there were certainly allegations that the um, laundry 
uh, was operating at you know non-commercial rates and that they had free labor and uh, that they were undercutting you know commercial laundries and that kind of thing and th- there may be an element of truth in that um, the laundries were open to you know inspection by the state uh, and and they were regularly inspected by government people um, the the um, the leading uh, nuns um, protested a lot of this and said, well, actually their their um, pricing was higher than the commercial laundries and that they really um, relied on uh, things like, um, you know, existing relationships with hospitals and and um, the decisions of individual families, et cetera, to be viable. So I, I think the, the larger point, though, is, you know, where are these criticisms coming from? And I think it's 100% the case and it's quite well established that a lot of the criticisms were really uh, based on uh, that old conflict, which really doesn't come up these days very much, but the the, the um, Catholic-Protestant conflict. And you, you, if you run your mind back to the 19th century in Australia, um, you know, concepts of the British Empire were very strong um, and, and um, you know, Anglicanism was the, the, the religion of, of the uh, British monarchy and the British state. And the British Empire, and there was a suspicion that people who had loyalty to um, to Rome and to Catholicism were essentially not very <laughs> not not very British. Uh, so there's that kind of uh, question of loyalty, and then there was an association of Catholicism with essentially being Irish, um, and there were all sorts of um, prejudices against the Irish at that time. Uh, the Irish were uh, obviously um, in situations of poverty, and a lot of Irish people came to Australia to escape poverty and there was a real connotation of Catholicism with being Irish so um, the the convent was a real lightning rod for um, you know anti-catholic uh, thinking and so you had and I, I'm saying this from the perspective of someone who grew up half Protestant half Catholic so I don't have an allegiance to either side in particular um, but um, you had people who were real uh, you know Protestant activists essentially spreading stories around you know, the sweating of labour in the laundry, all these uh, supposed subsidies that they were getting, um, how it was inappropriate for women to be driving tractors, you know, uh, in that sort of thing. And uh, it, was a, it was a major public controversy. And as I said, the government sent inspectors there, the Protestant associations sent, sent inspectors there. And um, through all of that, um, you know, the, the, the convent, um, the, the order... Was able to really rebut, so to rebut a lot of that uh, criticism and to show that it was essentially um, nonsense. And one of the key figures in the campaign against uh, the convent at that time, it was ultimately, um, you know, branded by the police as a bit of a you know a crackpot. Um, but uh, you know the sort of stuff that they were saying uh, found a ready audience, as you can imagine, because people love controversy and and. Um, you know, there were all sorts of different feelings about, uh, you know, Catholic enterprises. So, um, so I've, I was very careful to, to write that part of the book to say, well, yes, there were harsh conditions. Uh, yes, it was relying on, um, you know, in a sense, unpaid labour uh, to do this. Um, but uh, the flip side of that is that a lot of the criticisms were really um, uh, either exaggerated or were, were made up. Um, and I think it's important to, to put that in context. Mm. Now, I've a couple more questions before we move on to the 
community action. The first is the the if you look in the index, I'll start start this. One. If you look up the word Mary in the index, there's a whole list of <laughs> Mary, and they've got this funny characteristic predominantly of they're all Sister Mary Saint something, but the mm. Saint something often is a man's name. Saint Mary, Saint Joseph, Mary, Saint Thomas Aquinas. Do you, for two things. One, do you know why that approach was taken? And secondly, would would that would that have meant they had to be called say if they were Sister Saint? Sister Mary St. Joseph, would they have just been Sister Joseph because you couldn't call everyone Sister Mary and it would take a long lot of words to say Sister Mary St. <laughs> Joseph every time? That's a really good question uh, and it's, it, is, it is an unusual convention. I honestly don't know how they referred to each other on a day-to-day basis in the 19th century, but certainly later on they weren't all called, called um, Mother Mary or Sister Mary. They, they did uh, mix it up a bit. But, yeah, of the first four uh, nuns uh, that came, uh, there was Mother Mary and then three uh, sisters Mary. Uh, and, yeah, it would have been would have been a little bit awkward um, to call everyone Mary. Uh, and, yeah, they have those secondary names, so Sister Mary of St Thomas Aquinas or Sister Mary of St Francis, uh, etc. I think the reason why they were male names wasn't particularly because they were choosing male names, but more that they were... Um, you know, saints and and uh, and patriarchs, um, and it's interesting that uh, that the um, nuns, in a sense, lost their prior name, um, but the names were still known uh, to people as well. So there wasn't a full sort of erasing of their prior uh, identity. But uh, no, re- really good question. I'm not sure how they managed that on a practical level. Mm. And by the mid-1970s, the society had changed. Welfare wasn't necessarily done through religious institutions anymore, and Vatican II had come along, and you explained how the order itself divided into it seems to be a conservative arm and a more liberal arm, and eventually they left the land, and we come to to the ultimately the movement. But one thing, before the nuns leave the land, I'd like your view on this. The, you tell through in the book, especially in the early 1900s, the the sisters arrange a, a, a fair and they raise a lot of money and through a lot of this charitable work and char- raising money is how the actual buildings are built. They, they're paid for through these type of activities. And is there a sense that the, that I mean, almost a, a sense of sort of community justice that since the community of this area, Richmond, Collingwood, etc., has paid for so many decades and decades for these, for this institution and for this land's maintenance, whether that's in itself a reason why this land should be considered a community asset, even though the donors never actually owned anything in it, but it has just been such a community effort for so long. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's something I don't really draw out in the book, but it's definitely a good point. Um, so... Uh, the sort of fundraising that they did in that uh, conventual era was much broader than just, you know, the Abbotsford and Collingwood sort of area. It was right across uh, Melbourne and and Victoria. And they had these, as I said, these massive uh, charity events where you'd have the governor and others uh, come along. Um, So, yeah, there was a big public investment and a big community investment in the buildings. And the buildings were, you know, very very, uh, well-built, well-designed, large, you know, Italianate and Gothic structures so in a sense yeah there was a public stake in them 
but also the site itself. Um, it's public open space in large part with beautiful gardens and meadows right on the Yarra River, right in the middle of the of the city. So um, to the extent that there was a sense of public ownership of the site, as much as anything, it was of the grounds and the environs around it, right? So um, after the um, after the convent was closed and after it ceased to be a college campus, it was essentially boarded up and walled up for a while. But people still went there. They, they climbed through cracks in the wall and over fences and things or around the riverside and they used the gardens. They, they took cuttings from the gardens. They used the, the open space. They played games on the old tennis courts and, you know, explored the buildings. So even before it was handed in a formal sense to the community, there was a strong sense of community ownership, partly because of its riverside um, location, partly because of um, that important access, you know, to the paths and things. But, yeah, I think you're right. And, and also there's that historical uh, investment in the site. I think that's that's valid. Right. Now, the, the um, when I was reading through the book, I was trying to follow the land ownership at points in time, and it seemed that the... The, the religious order owned the land from the late 1800s until about the 1970s, and it it then seems to have come into the possession of the educational institution that ultimately became La Trobe University. And then in the 1990s, and this is what weaves in the second series of chapters, the community story, a developer, Australand, comes along with plans to redevelop the site. I'd like you to explain if you could how what what right did Austerland Austerland had to actually start throwing around its designs for this site because it, it seems never to have actually owned it but it, it almost dealt with the land like it was going to own it yeah good question so just walking up to some of those land ownership points um, so yes more or less the whole of the area was owned by the nuns up until the, the mid-1970s. Mid At the time when they sold it, um, I think the children's farm was carved out around that time and that became in itself a, um, a municipal and community space, so just the farm. Um, the rest of it um, went to two institutions. One was, a, I think, a nursing college and one was an early childhood institution and, and through the university reforms, etc. I think both of those um, went to two different universities. I think the University of Melbourne and La Trobe University both had uh, colleges on the site and the University of Melbourne still has a, a foothold there with their um, early learning centre across the road from the main entrance of the convent. Um, so um, once the, the universities uh, left the scene, essentially the land um, came under the control of a public uh, development agency, which was the Urban Land Corporation, went through all sorts of different incarnations, but it's more or less the Urban Land Corporation. And it was a highly um, yeah, commercial entity. This is in the uh, the Jeff Kennett era of Victoria. So it was all about, you know, development and private investment and, you know, um, private spaces. And uh, so they ran a, a tender. Uh, and uh, I think as a result of that, the reason why Australand had a stake is because they were um, the preferred proponent. And it was only quite late in that process that um, th this really came to light in the community. And 
Australan, you know, started notifying people in the immediate vicinity of the convent, notifying uh, local residents. And um, they said, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> What's this? And, and the Australan proposal was for uh, something like um, 289 residential units to be built uh, partly by re, um, rebuilding inside the large old convent buildings, but also by building um, townhouses and low-rise um, uh, buildings around the edge and around the river and that kind of thing. And then, a, a, I think, a 10-storey or so tower on the north side of, of St Helier's Street, so um, just on the northern side of the site. And the local people said, well, hang on a second. And a very astute uh, member of the local council said to them, well, actually, this is not entirely done and dusted because there's a municipal step where uh, for this to actually go ahead, even though, you know, even though Australand are, are good to go and even though the Urban Land Corporation and the government are good to go, um, there is actually a step where the community can object uh, through the local council process. And that's exactly what they did. They quickly organised, this is at the end of 1997, um, and they quickly ha held large meetings of local residents and engaged in a formal sense with the council process um, which allowed them to slow everything down and to really start a whole different track of public hearings and, um, you know, a multi-track multi uh, consideration of different kinds of proposals for the site. Yes, well, so we get to the, as you said, we get to the 1990s and the, the convent has been boarded up. It's a bit overgrown. The community still uses the area. Word spreads that Australand is looking to develop and then the community group springs up and there are, the book draws out three or four important aspects of a community movement. I'm, I'm going to mention these, these well, there's three or four I'm going to mention now and then I'd like you to comment on how important it is for all of these elements to come together. The first is that you need people who are actually dedicated and there are, you go through the names and some names as Nigel Lewis, Joe Kinross, Sally Romanes, I think I've said that correctly, and, and a whole bunch of these locals who really dedicate themselves to trying to preserve this site. That's what seems to be the first thing. The second point is the book, you, you make the point that it's not enough just to oppose something. You actually need to have your own vision, and your own vision essentially has to be the vision that wins out mm. to be what's actually wanted. And then the there's a third element which is, or seems to be almost luck, where you need to have or luck or sort of luck that's worked for in a way where you get the support of the right people at the right time. And there's two there's two aspects to this. The first is there are these famous, very rich philanthropists, including from Rupert Murdoch's family, his mother, Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, I think it's his sister, Anne Cantor. There's Lynn Williams, the widow of a famous Australian artist, Fred Williams. There's all these people who can have profile, who can raise money and who are interested in saving this site. And then there's another element of, I think it, I'd like you to comment on this, it seems to be luck, in that there's a man in the Labor Party called Steve Brax, who in the 1990s is not in power, but ends up in 1999 becoming the Premier and his wife especially supportive of this movement so it's almost as though you need 
all these elements to come together and mm. to get a successful campaign, which in one view is admirable for these people, but in another view is you think far out. This is what a hill to get over. If this is what <laughs> it takes to save something, you need all of this to happen and you only just get there in the end by the skin of your teeth. Mm. No, that's a really good point. Um, it's In some ways this is a template for other campaigns, but, um, yeah, you're right. The flip side of that is, God, it shows how difficult it can be. Uh, I describe it as as fractal. There's so many different aspects to it, and, and it really is using these networks. So going through your, your question, um, yeah, those people that you mentioned are, are definitely some of the key people in the campaign, and they took it very, very seriously. They committed uh, to it as a full-time thing, uh, some of them, um, and they worked on it um, in, um, in a very professional and serious way for about eight years. Uh, so it wasn't just a sort of a side project. Uh, they, they made it their main thing. Um, and they were very diligent about keeping notes, writing to people, um, and you know jumping through the formal hoops in the right way. Um, and yeah, they, um, they, they took it very seriously. Um, you mentioned the point around the positive solution. I think that's so crucial. Um, if they had have just said, no, we don't like it, we don't like it, but there's no real sort of solution, that wouldn't have worked. But you can imagine in order to put up a positive solution and a viable solution, that in itself creates all sorts of other difficulties. And I describe the, the campaign as going through a series of phase shifts where they really started off as this sort of ground root, sort of a grassroots groundswell um, local um, objectors and, and um, you know, sort of community activists, and then quickly became uh, proponents um, or participants in a formal planning process, but then proponents of a social enterprise uh, where they're actually, you know, essentially they, they became developers as well. Uh, they were rival developers uh, with, with a different kind of vision for the site, uh, you know, social developers. And then they became you know, um, stewards of the site and ultimately, you know, managers and landlords. So each one of those was was an important shift and you've got to have a lot of depth and flexibility to actually pull that off. And this is why a lot of these campaigns fail because they just can't do that. They don't have that continuity. They don't have that agility. And you talk about, you know, the kinds of people that they brought into it. I think this was a really, really important part of their success, which is that it wasn't political. So, uh, you know, their, their natural disposition was you know, left progressive you know inner urban um, and they had good connections with the Labor Party including Mary Delahunty who um, helped put the convent on the um, ALP platform before that election that before the 1999 election that you mentioned um, but they made sure that they had good relationships also with the Liberal Party particularly with some key people and local members of the Liberal Party uh, and the Greens and the local council and big business and the professional services. You know, they had, you know, real estate agents, you know, gifting them, you know, office space and free advertising. They had um, major philanthropists like Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, as you, as you mentioned, and, and members of her family really got behind it in a big way. Other, other major corporates and philanthropists um, and partly benefiting from, as I said, being right next to Kew as well as right next to Collingwood. And um, they were able to mobilise that. They, they kept a, um, a list of people, I think they called them the great and the good, uh, more or less that. And it was people like, you know, Barry Jones and Sam Neill and Stephanie Alexander, 
um, mm. um, Michelle Quigley, and you know important um, public figures who had public profile, and you know all of it came back to the compelling story of this very special place and the idea that you know do you really want to put a fence around it and do you really want to you know dismantle these buildings and close off this open space or do you want to keep this as a community asset given given how special it is so it all came back to a very compelling uh, proposition which is to to protect and maintain the site in community hands but yeah, there was a lot of ingredients uh, that were um, really important in, in, in why it succeeded, and therefore, you know, in, in some sense, <laughs> hard hard to replicate in another campaign. Yes, and I was going to actually, in relation to another campaign, a couple of points you mentioned there, and I don't, I'm loath to give away the the all of the elements in the story because it does actually, in the end, it is. It's, I think it's it's just worth reading to actually absorb absorb in the the way in which this site is is ultimately preserved rather than just say it in a few minutes on a over the over a, a conversation. But the with the site itself, so you have the inner city neighbourhood, and it does seem to be on my reading of it, it seems to have a a left wing lean, and I imagine that it would be relatively filled with educated well-educated people through school and perhaps tertiary mostly mm-hmm. moderately high disposable income politically left leaning a, a, a sort of non a, a, a non a lot of non-religious households i imagine and who the sort of people who love a challenge and who can get into it does that mean that these type of campaigns would almost be unable to be prog- and sorry i should also say i imagine these people have a little bit of influence mm. around the place and so if this had been, if there's a similar site that's out in the in the boondocks of a city, does that in a way make it so much harder for, for this sort of social community issue to actually be carried through in those type of areas? It's a really good question. I, I think it certainly doesn't exclude that. But, um, you know, if, if it was a development that, you know, that was planned, you know, in, in essentially a, a um, you know, much less well-off area uh, with people with much less influence, I think you'd probably have to rely more on the sort of the raw power of democracy, you know, in terms of large numbers of people and, and the political process. Uh, but ultimately it would come down to, you know, a compelling uh, business case in a sense, that a compelling case for what you were trying to preserve and why and how. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I would be still reasonably optimistic. You know, in, in any kind of community, you're going to get people who will step up as leaders. In any kind of community, you're going to get people who will devote themselves to the extent they can. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think it probably was the case that there were more people in that area uh, who could um, give more of themselves to it and they had a diversity of experience and, you know, mixtures of social and professional networks and that kind of thing. But I wouldn't want you to get the impression that the people who led the campaign were, you know, somehow kind of, you know, um, particularly wealthy or, you know, um, uh, superly well-connected. Uh, I think at the beginning they were just, you know, essentially local residents, um, not, not living high or anything like that. Uh, and they just saw that this was a really, really important, you know, call to action. And it's only after that that they really mobilised and built that larger 
network. And they, they did all sorts of clever things, including using the media, um, using billboards, um, and uh, calling into radio programs. You know, um, well-known uh, radio journalists in in, um, in Melbourne would regularly have them on, um, and um, you know, repeating the key messages. They had uh, uh, desks on the bike path all the time with flyers. They uh, sat down in front of you know important um, you know, community sites, and they had tables at supermarkets and shopping centres just reminding people that this was a campaign uh, and that it was still, you know, unresolved. And ultimately they used a few um, strong-arm tactics like sending goats and, and um, other animals down to Parliament House yeah. <laughs> to remind, remind parliamentarians that, uh, that they needed to make a decision about the whole site. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it was there was a sort of a lot of money behind it as such. I think it was a really compelling case. You had people who were very committed and they were able to build and then mobilise uh, that network. But the reason why people joined uh, in wasn't because they you know, saw some sort of personal advantage in it or that some sort of you know uh, economic benefit. They joined because they thought it was a really compelling story. Mm. And with, is it, it seems, well, the point you make, one of the points you make in the book is the site and I imagine it's still the case, the site itself has to earn its keep. So it can't, it's not just mm. given over to people just to go and do what they want with it. It has to be maintained. There are leases, as I understand that, between, and there needs to be a synchronicity between all of the uses of the site. This has to have to make it actually a place that people want to go. So is that the case? Does it actually have to earn its keep still? Yes, that's definitely the case. So um, the, the site itself is, is you know, grouped. Um, with some important other cultural institutions in Melbourne, like the Botanic Gardens and the zoo and, you know, the Arts Centre and the NGV. But its governance and its ownership and its funding are very different. It's owned by the community. It doesn't get ongoing operating funding from any government. Uh, and so it has to be self-sustaining. And there's all sorts of different ways that it does that uh, through, through um, tenancy income, through events, uh, through car parking um, uh, and, you know, through, through essentially through donations and philanthropic support from people in the community. Uh, it doesn't get ongoing uh, government funding. Um, it's had a few um, capital works grants over the years and things like that and, and it gets you know, some money for specific events and that kind of thing uh, through the arts uh, funding system from, you know, mm -hmm. on, on a sort of one-off basis. But uh, it doesn't get ongoing funding like the zoo does or the botanic gardens or anything like that. So it's an important public asset, but it's funded very differently. And, you know, so that means that the way it's run has to be, you know, very, uh, very careful and very commercial in a sense. The, the, the trick for, for the, um, the owners and the operators is always uh, to walk that um, tightrope between, on the one hand, being viable and sustainable, but on the other hand, you know, maintaining the whole rationale for keeping the site in community ownership, uh, which is that it's not, you know, it doesn't have, a, you know, fast food restaurants and it's not, you know, hyper-commercial. It doesn't have, you know, housing on it. Um, so to really keep to the spirit and to the, and to the essence of the mandate, which is to run it as a, as a public asset, as a community right. asset, um, and, uh, you know, that's what they do. And obviously in the time of COVID in particular, that's been extremely difficult because of... Um, 
you know the drop in visitation and and events and and all that. Um, so they've had like like a lot of uh, arts and cultural organisations have had a, a pretty tough sort of year, but uh, but they're getting through it and and it's in their bones to um, you know and, and going right back to the beginning, it's in their bones to to fight for viability and to you know to make it work. Yep. Now the book has two photographic sections. The first relates to the convent life and the second relates to the developed life of the site. The first are in black and white and um, it looks, it has a real regimented feel. None of the people look particularly happy and, and why would you working in some of those conditions? And then in the second set of photos, it shows the modern life that's in the site. Colour is introduced and there's vibrancy, there's artistic works. Was that a deliberate choice and was there a sense of trying to show that the site one is still alive but in the second way has almost come back to life well it's a really good question um it's not quite as stark as that i think one of the reasons why a lot of the pictures in the earlier section are black and white is because they are actually black and white pictures because <laughs> they're yeah. early um but yeah it does work and and from a production point of view you know you probably know this already but you either have a black and white section or you have a color section uh you generally don't have have them mixed um so it, it just turned out that the more modern photos tended to be color and the earlier ones were black and white uh mostly but it does tell a story as you as you say about the kind of you know the austere period and some of those early photos of you know the girls all lined up with their with their hands behind their heads or you know walking around in those courtyards um it's a real kind of you know extreme institutional sort of vibe you know there's rows and rows of beds and desks and that kind of thing so um the black and white does sort of support that that mood of being you know kind of institutional bleak um and yes the the modern convent is has a very different vibe it really is about activation and and community outreach and and uh, color through art and through performance and through you know making things on the site so um, yeah, I think probably the, <laughs> the it's a it's a um, serendipitous alignment of the necessities of production, uh, but also you know the story. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you, Stuart. We need to to finish up pretty soon, so I'd like to ask you what your next projects are. What's in the pipeline? Sure. Um, I'm working on a, a book about uh, water markets at the moment, uh, some research on um, uh, on uh, irrigation uh, markets, which sounds um, a little bit kind of lateral, but it's a, it's an important uh, public policy story. And I've, I've been writing a bit in that space with, with a co-author, um, Scott Hamilton, and he and I have already published a bit of our work in that area on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, et cetera. Uh, I'm working on a an institutional history uh, of one of the large uh, international law firms at the moment. Uh, I'm interested in the history of the professions, uh, and uh, that one's well underway. And um, a couple of other histories uh, further down the track. Um, I, I think um, it's always good to have a pipeline and to know what you're going to be doing in the next 12, 12 to 18 months or so. And, uh, yeah, I've got a couple of others uh further down the track as well, including one on, um, uh, it's essentially a, um, what they call fintech, so financial technology history, um, and a couple of others as well. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's 
it's going to be a busy couple of years. Mm. Oh, well, <laughs> well, thank you for coming along today. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've, I certainly enjoyed the book. It's called The Convent, The City Finds Its Heart, and it's by Stuart. So thank you very much, Stuart Kells, for coming. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was, was, um, was great and much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Australian channel of the New Books Network, and that was Stuart Kells, author of The Convent, A City Finds Its Heart, which is available now and it is worth reading. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.